0: And, and that idea is certainly not uh, unique to 2,000 years ago. You can find lots of churches preaching the same idea today. Jesus shows the law as the impossible standard of godliness that it truly is. And failure in any part is failure in all parts. And you can never be good enough. Same subject matter, completely different perspectives. Only one of them happens to be God's perspective, which is the only perspective that matters. Everything okay, dear? Yes, the gentleman had followed me in the middle of the road. Oh yeah, yi. He didn't get hit or anything, he just...
1: No, which is why I called 911, but didn't
0: feel comfortable leaving until... Thank you that you didn't get run over. Appreciate it. So let's look at Matthew 6, please. This is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount.
1: Take heed that ye do not your arms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine arms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest arms... Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine arms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, Have you ever really thought about the imagery that's present
0: here in these eight verses of the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, imagine blowing a trumpet before you give money to God. Presenting my giving. And don't feel too superior if you've never seen someone doing the old money flourish as the, as the uh, tray goes by, uh, plate, as the plate goes by, when that, that $100 bill gets a little extra flap before it goes down so everybody can see it. Or walking down the street and having a prayer attack. Oh God! Public drama in the name of service of God? you think we were back in the 80s with the televangelists. Judaism was, and still is, a religion of show and outward appearance. And don't think that Baptistism isn't some days. But Jesus asks, If God sees everything, why not do your religious activities in private where only God can see them? He says that, If you get credit for doing religious things, that credit can only be applied in one place. You can either have credit with God, or you can have credit with man. And if you have credit with man, you don't have credit with God. I'm going to pick on you again, brother. Do you get to write down an incoming bill in two ledgers, or does it only go to one? Otherwise, you're cooking the books, right? This idea by Jesus is revolutionary. It's unorthodox. It goes against the grain of what everyone else is preaching. It's sacrilegious. It's against the religious teaching of the Pharisees. This is the entire basis of Judaism. This is what the Pharisees, the holiest men in the land, did. Public acts of service to God. And Jesus says... If God can see everything, do you really need to blow a trumpet first? I think he knows it's coming. Yeah. And you only get credit in one place. So if you get credit with men, you get no credit with God. Now, that's a we have to be careful when we look at that because we go, wait, you don't get credit for works at all. You don't get credit for works for salvation. Once we're saved, God expects us to do good works. We are saved unto good works. But this principle of not doing it big so you get credit with men, don't think that doesn't apply to us too. If we do works of righteousness to look good to others, hope you enjoyed your reward. The law, as was given by God, back in the Old Testament, is very rules intensive. It's got do's, and it's got do nots, right? Now, given that structure from God, there's kind of two ways you can take that. You can look at that structure, and you can use inductive reasoning. You can induce the idea behind that structure, and go, wait, God wants us to Love him and love other people and live humbly. And so the way to live to these laws is to change who I am and to try to be more godly. And, and, and it wasn't a guessing game because God gave it to the people. There's in Micah, tail end of 6b, the verse says, What, man, what does God expect of you? To do justly, to love mercy, And to walk humbly with thy God. That was the idea behind the law. As well as showing you can't get there from here. As a principle for living, it was love other people. Treat people the way you would like to be treated. Or, you can take that structure of rules given by God and do what the Pharisees did. You can use deduction and reduce it to its minimums. Identify the minimum effort path that allows you to comply and not offend anybody, but There's no spirit behind that. It's just a list of do's and don'ts. Jesus starts this section of the Sermon on the Mount preaching about two key aspects of Judaism as taught by the Pharisees, giving alms and praying. Both of them are easy show-off activities, unfortunately. It's easy to be really public in your giving. It's easy to be really public in your praying. And if you're using a reductive approach where it's all about looks and it's all about what people think of you, the more flash, the better. Jesus says you should be sneaking during your giving and praying in secret. Two necessary acts, two services to God, but done with subtlety. Let's keep reading, please. Amen. Contained there within the Sermon on the Mount is this little nugget, an example prayer. When you pray, do it in this way. Do it in this manner. Not repeat this, because he just got through talking about vain repetition. And if you're just repeating a memorized prayer, well, where's the Spirit? You're back into the land of do's and don'ts. You're back in the land of prescribed actions. He provides a model prayer. In line with this stealth worship concept, if you're going to pray, try praying this way. Sixty-six entire words. First 24 are about God. Asking God to accomplish His will on earth. The next seven, ask for basics only. Bread. Acknowledging God's provision in the life of the believer. The next ten, address our sins and remind us of the common standard of forgiveness. We're only forgiven in the way we forgive others. The next 11 ask for grace in our lives. And the last 14 focus back on God's majesty. If we do an engineering analysis, and I can't resist because of my background. Look at this pie chart. God's glory one is the biggest chunk of the entire prayer. We got a little bit of provision, a little bit of forgiveness, a little bit of grace, and then back to God's glory. This is a low-fat, high-protein prayer. There's more stuff and less fluff. The focus is on God and God's role in the believer's life. There's no gimme in this prayer. Gimme this, gimme that, gimme the other thing. Oh, give him that while you're at it, because that makes me feel better while asking, I'm asking for my give This prayer is about God, this model prayer. And we've heard, I've heard not just entire sermons, I've heard entire sermon series on these prayers, which I will not be doing. But as a guideline, it's all about God. Public prayer and worship. If Christ taught that prayer should be silent and private, what's with these Baptists all praying aloud in church? Right? Aren't we violating what Christ said? Now, prayer is a formal act of worship in the church. It's called out in the the Scriptures. So do we have a contradiction in the Scriptures? No. When prayer is done in church, the focus should be the worship. The focus should be on God. It is an act of worship. It should never be on the agent, the person doing the praying. And it's a balancing act if you're the one doing praying. When you hear such a prayer from someone here in church, it should lift you up in agreement. Not awe you with the poetry of phrase and the gravity of delivery. It should be all about the amens. Yes, I agree. I wish, you know, I'm praying along with him. Not I wish. I am praying along with him. He's just leading the congregation in prayer. That's an act of worship. But that same prayer done out on the street corner, well, that would be a different story. Now you're doing it perhaps to be seen of men. And let's see, use not vain repetition. Oh boy, getting back to that church prayer. You know, we all have club phrases that we use when we speak. If, if you wrote down the stuff I say in a day, you could look back and go, well, yeah, he, he used that phrase again and that phrase again and that phrase again and that phrase again. Because it's, it's a verbal shorthand, we all have our habits. Well, does that make it vain repetition? If if I use those phrases when I'm praying here in church, is that vain repetition? No, it's it's not vain unless they're empty and put on for show.
1: Yeah.
0: To me, there's a very simple line. If you suspect you're going to be called on to pray and you're practicing your prayer, you may have a problem. The goal of corporate work, corporate prayer is heartfelt extemporaneous worship. Ooh, big word extemporaneous. In spontaneous, on the spot. Pouring out our hearts to God. And you know what? If you pour water out of a fancy pitcher or out of a bucket, is it still water? Yeah. Yeah. So it ain't the prettiness of the prayer. It's where it's come f- Sorry, Bob. It's where it's coming from. Yeah. So what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, prayer in secret is not, obviously, prayer in a corporate worship sense, but I did want to talk about it because it's prayer. And there are those who might poke at our Baptist practice of prayer as part of worship. And make, you know, make no mistake, it's in the Bible. It is a practice of the first century church. We're continuing that. It's a good thing. <laughs> it's, it's what God is looking for. But like any good thing, we can turn it to the bad if we put the wrong spin on it, but let's keep reading here in Matthew.
1: For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly."
0: So Jesus now is going to lay into the third great element of showy religion as practiced by the Pharisees, fasting, setting aside food to focus on God. Now, fasting is a double show off because first of all, you got to be, you know, it's, it's pretty religious to fast. You're going to give up food. Now, I know some people who, you know, it said when you divide uh, people into uh, two classes, you've got those who eat to live and those who live to eat. I think we know which group I'm in. But the eat to live, them giving up food, maybe not so much of a big deal. But giving up food is pretty significant. You've got to be pretty religious to fast. In that day, especially, you also have to be rich to fast. Wait, what? You have to be rich. To give up your food. Yeah, if you work for a living, you can't hardly afford to fast because you need those calories to do your job. If you're the idle rich, you can get away with fasting. And you can get good enough quality food that you can give up some of it and kind of make it up with the other stuff. So it's a double flex. It's a real serious show-off. I don't think you caught a lot of poor people fasting, except unintentionally because they couldn't get any food, and that's not quite the same thing. As in matters of prayer and giving, Jesus says your fasting should be a personal matter between you and God. It should be unobtrusive. If you're out there looking miserable because you're fasting, well, you're getting your credit before men, and it's not hitting the ledgers of God, as it were. Fasting is a spiritual thing. You take food out of your day, but you spend the time you would be spending on food, preparation, and eating, and you spend that time on God, which means dieting is not fasting. Sorry, guys. Unless you are actually fasting. You may have noticed the titles by now. Religion is not for show, has been the title for quite a few of these slides. It's not a show either. Although if you go on television on Sunday morning, ooh boy, can it be a show. <sighs> Jesus destroyed the basis Of the Pharisees' salvation through works by teaching that God looks at our thoughts and attitudes, not just our actions. That was last week's lesson. Now, he destroys the trappings of the Pharisees' religion of good works. Praying, giving, and fasting by teaching that religious acts done by God, excuse me, for God, should be done anonymously and secretly. Avoiding recognition wherever possible. Let's keep reading here in Matthew.
1: Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye, If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness! No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon.
0: So Jesus, continuing this sermon, kind of returns to his starting point. If you're doing something for God, it can only be credited to your accounts once. Try that again. It can only be credited to your account once, here on earth or there in heaven. And he says, laying up treasures on earth, putting your accounts here, is dumb and short-sighted. Because so many things can go wrong. Moths and or rust and decay in general can eat up your treasures. Diamonds can catch on fire. It's a quick way to lose a diamond. Um, but, but this was a, short, a core idea of Judaism. Getting credit down here with your fellow man. This is the religion these people have been steeped in. We read the Sermon on the Mount, and we go, "Uh uh uh-huh, 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 yeah, yeah, I heard that before, yeah, yeah, yeah. These people are going, what? Because it's completely contrary to everything they've ever been taught. Jesus says, where your treasure is is where your heart will be. Well, it's hard to argue with that. Where's your attention? Where's your focus? Up there? Down here. And he says you can't split your focus. And it's tough. Uh, I think think men have it worse than women in this regard. But you tend to focus on one thing. Uh, God says you can't serve two masters. You're you're, you're not going to be able to effectively split your focus completely. You're going to always lean to one or the other. Now remember... Sermon on the Mount is also recorded in a parallel passage in Luke. Let's take a look at a segment from that, brother.
1: And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness.
0: So put yourself in the mind, or for a moment, in the mind of Christ who's giving this sermon on laying up your treasures in heaven and not on earth. And the importance of doing things subtly and, you know, not doing it for show. And how salvation is not through acts of righteousness, they're not good enough. And he's overturning all these ideas, and some guy in the audience pipes up, And says, hey, uh, teacher, um, you know what? Why don't you use your authority as a teacher to tell my brother that I deserve my fair share of the earthly treasure? You know, if you're going to overturn all the religious practice, I should get some benefit out of it. Christ answers, what makes you think that's my job? That's not why I'm here. This guy is a heckler, at best, and clueless at worst. He's listening to a preach uh, to to a sermon on laying up your treasures in heaven, and so he says to the preacher, "Hey, uh, I'm not getting my fair share here on my on earth. Would you mind talking to my brother, dude? Really? (laughs) Is that the only reason you're here?" Is that the only thing you're hearing from me? I'm overturning social structures, so I should take care of you? That's not why I'm here. So Jesus transitions into a parable. This one is not a dark saying. It's pretty straightforward. A man who is so rich that he can't store all his stuff decides to invest in more storage space. Hey, I got a place down here, storage locker. I can buy a, rent a couple rooms there. I got more space for my stuff. It's not quite as convenient. I can't put it on display in my home, but hey, it's still my stuff. I can store it for later when I get tired of this stuff. Move my stuff around. It's all stuff. I'm doing great. Tells himself he's well off. He'll be comfortable for many years. I got retirement. This is great. But he's not considered eternity, and his life ends that night. Where's all his stuff? Well, it's over in the storage locker, and he's paying $150 a month, except he's not paying it. His heirs are, because he's dead. Pretty straightforward parable. The man put his treasures on earth, and they did him such a great deal of good come eternity. Let's continue on in Matthew, please.
1: Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day. Is the evil thereof.
0: Okay, trust in God's provision. Christ is talking about laying up your treasures in heaven. So next, he very reasonably focuses on our needs here on earth. And the short version is, God will provide for your needs, so don't spend all your time worrying about them. Because if you spend all your time worrying about them, you're saying to God, "Well, I can't count on you." i got to handle this myself. i got to worry about this. i got to do something about this. Similarly, and repeating. Right, right, sorry. And then he finishes up basically saying, once again, it's not about who has the most to- toys when he dies. That's not how you win the game. It's not treasures on earth. It's treasures in heaven. And I, I'm summarizing this quickly because really what I want to focus on Is not Christ's message, but all the different ways that people have insisted on misunderstanding it. And I'm going to use the term peculiar misunderstandings. I'm stealing that from Brother Lester. If he were here, I'd apologize to him. Let him know when you see him. Peculiar misunderstanding number one. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, a Christian must hate money and riches. You cannot be wealthy and heavenly focused. Really? I think Jesus' warning was not to value money over God. Money, as is most commonly misquoted, is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. As a matter of fact, Paul didn't condemn the rich. He noted that their resources could be used to aid the poor and further the ministry. And a rich man who uses his fortunes to aid in the service of God is certainly using the gifts God has given him. There's no reason for Christians to hate money. On the other hand, if all your focus is on collecting it, you may have some issues. Peculiar misunderstanding number two, Jesus said that God will provide all our needs as he does the flowers and the birds, so we don't need to do anything. God will take care of it. That's called laziness. Throughout the sermon, God spoke of Christ spoke of performing good works and giving to the needy. Which means you've got to have money and spare time to do those things. So he's kind of encouraging you to take care of your basic needs without spending all your time worrying about them. Again, it's really easy to get off of center. God is is preaching a message that's here, well, let me do it here, (laughs) and humanity loves to go this way, or that way, or this way, or into one of many possible extremes, instead of the core message that Christ is giving. And this attitude is straight-up selfishness, which is contrary to the entire sermon, your misunderstanding, number three. Jesus said, if you seek the kingdom, then all these things shall be added unto you. Follow God and you'll be rewarded with the glory and wealth of Solomon. Name it and claim it. Oh, what a popular misconception this is today. (sighs) Jesus' statement was around basic needs, not around luxuries. Oh, but I need a Cadillac. Basic needs, not delusions. The sermon speaks of a heavenly focus, not on earthly riches. How on earth can you extract earthly riches as the message? And Paul gives a wonderful example of a life dedicated to God that, frankly, was filled with trouble, not riches. God never promised us a rose garden. He promised us a path with thorns. He said, if I had trouble, don't be surprised if trouble comes knocking. And yet, pull a couple verses out of uh, context, look at them in isolation, make it whatever message you want. This is an ugly misunderstanding of this passage. Finally, number four, Jesus said we shouldn't worry about tomorrow, only today, right? So, carpe that diem, seize the day, grab all the gusto you can. Uh, no. The sermon did preach about a heavenly focus and not worrying about the necessities of tomorrow, but it also condemned seeking earthly pleasures. We seek eternal values. It's not about, you know, living our life with no thought to tomorrow. That, that's, that's a pretty wacky uh, misinterpretation. Our concern should be pleasing God, not ourselves. So, summary. Oh, boy. Summary, summary, summary. Last week, Jesus destroyed, in his beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees' idea of salvation by works. This week, he destroys their concept of a religion of show, about making yourself look good. And remember, the holiest people in Israel, in the minds of everybody, were these paragons of showy religion. Jesus says, that ain't it. That may be what they want. That may be the message they're preaching, but it's got nothing to do with God's message. It's got nothing to do with what God's preaching. God can see everything. So if you're praying in a closet, He sees you just as well as if you're praying on the corner of 34th and Ella. And if you're giving anonymously, it pleases God far more than the showy drop into the uh, plate. I'm actually, I love the fact that we're using these little red boxes instead of the plates anymore. I think it takes a certain amount of stuffiness out of giving. We may not stand on street corners praying loudly, so we will be praised for our righteousness. But how might we find ourselves doing good things with the wrong motives? Anybody want to take a crack at that one? I see the occasional nodding head, but all the mouths are slammed shut. Nope, 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 ain't going to say nothing. No? Okay. No? All right, brother. In Matthew five fourteen through 16, Jesus said we ought to be the light of the world so that people would, give our, would see our good deeds and give glory to God. Yet in chapter 6 here, he teaches about doing good works in secret. How would you respond to the claim that this is a contradiction in Scripture?
1: show,
0: doing it just a, a, a touch louder, if you would, brother. I think doing it show, doing it So we can do good works without them being showy. But I mean it seems like there's a contradiction there. Do good works publicly so God will get the glory.
1: Attention that's, that's So
0: you could you could do it in an attention. I'm, I've been asked to repeat what you say. So you could do it in an attention grabbing manner, certainly.
1: That's, that or God.
0: no, I should think not.
1: And you can do it in a way that uh, is known known to others, and yet uh, you're not you're not out there beating your chest or pumping your or lifting your head up high.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it's one thing when the church does good works, where as, a, as an organization, this church is out there feeding the poor. But when an individual is out there feeding the poor, maybe it's a little harder for God to get the glory. I don't know. Anyone else have any uh, perspective on this? Possible. Brother. Absolutely. Intentions are important, aren't they? Are you doing it for attention? Or are you doing it to reflect glory on God? Intention, yes, you, you yes. What is your intention? Are you doing it for attention? No,
1: attention, is attention.
0: Yes, I agree. Yes, I'm, 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 I'm rephrasing what you're saying, brother. I apologize.
1: But if my intention to help that individual, my intention to help him, then I think it's good in God's eyes. But if I'm just doing it so people can say, "Oh, look at Greg," and he's, you know, that is not good.
0: Thank you, brother. I I think you've come to the core of it. And in the back, speak up if you can, brother. Amen. You're not to be able to hide the fact no, no, I hear you. You It's going to be something different than than you attempting to uh make yourself like you're literally just trying to spend time with God. It's kind of like Moses spending time with God's presence inside the tent on the mountain. He comes down, he doesn't realize who he is. Doesn't know his face is shining. No, and it's a beautiful uh, analogy. Thank you, brother. Yeah, you know the the point being, if I uh, hope and hopefully you could all hear him because he's going to say it better than I did, am. But you know, if if our focus is on living our life with God, then that's going to change the way we live, and that changed way of living is what is an example to people who see us going through our daily lives, not doing acts of show we worship, but quietly living a godly life. And when that is seen, that's what gives glory to God. Brother, I think you had something you wanted to add to that? I think our-